This is Historical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is the tale of the French artist who made a death mask for Marie Antoinette after she met the guillotine. Welcome back, dear listeners. Happy April. I hope wherever you are in the world, you can at least see some springtime outside of your window, since I'm assuming you're all in lockdown. And I also hope that you're getting outside a little bit to go on walks in your neighborhood. In Seattle, the saving grace of quarantine so far has been fairly decent weather, minus a few days. Last week, I even saw some wild bunnies hopping down the street. We have a bunny problem in Seattle, which I say in air quotes because it's the best problem in the world. I am routinely delighted because between April and September, I see bunnies randomly hopping around my neighborhood. But yeah, I hope you're getting a little bit of magic, even though things are hard right now. I also wanted to call out two blog posts that I wrote, which you can find in the show notes or at immortalperfumes.com under the blog tab. First, I wrote a post looking at historical epidemics and how we overcame them. There's some fun little stories about Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, Shakespeare, and Sir Isaac Newton. I also discussed the 1918 flu, so if you're looking for information on how humans overcame pestilence in the past, check that out. Second, I also wrote a blog post with, seriously, about 100 links of books, shows, museums, and projects to help distract you. It took me like six hours to compile. There's some really great stuff in there, so check it out. You can do virtual tours of the Winchester Mystery House. I've got a whole list of books if you wish that your favorite dead author solved mysteries. And I've also got some tips for those of you out there who may struggle with depression or anxiety. So again, immortalperfumes.com and click on the blog. It's the first two posts on the page. Can't miss it. You can also find both of those posts in today's show notes. All right, let's seg into today's subject. In my giant blog post titled Quarantine and Chill, there's a whole subsection about Marie Antoinette and revolutionary France. One of the books I recommended in there is called Little by Edward Carey. I'll talk about it more at the end of the episode, but that novel is a dramatization of the life of Marie Tussaud. Now, I've talked a few times on here about how I spent the majority of my life in Los Angeles. I used to work on Sunset Boulevard, right around the corner from the Chinese Theater and the Kodak Theater, and Madame Tussauds opened there right at the tail end of me living there. Listeners, I routinely saw people dressed up like Charlie Chaplin and Marilyn Monroe just because that's what people do on the Walk of Fame, but nothing prepared me for seeing celebrities made of wax. Profoundly disturbing. I did not know the history of Tussauds, I just thought it was some weird, Ripley's Believe It or Not, tourist attraction. Little did I know, the real Madame Tussauds was deeply entwined with Marie Antoinette's final days. This one's a doozy, so I hope you enjoy. All right, imagine yourself in the throng of a rabid crowd calling for the queen's blood. Chapter one, Apprentice to the Doctor. Marie Grischultz was born in Strasbourg, France on December 1st, 1761. Strasbourg is actually the site where dancing plagues struck in the 1500s. You can read about that in the pandemic blog post I just mentioned. Fun little aside there. I'll also link that post in the show notes. Anyway, her mother and father were German. Her father actually died two months before her birth. 
He had been a German soldier and had fought in several wars, leaving him with grotesque injuries. He had a silver plate where his jaw should have been because his lower jaw was completely blown away. Marie Tussaud obviously never knew her father, but it's interesting to note the extent of his injuries because of some of the nightmarish work she would later be known for. So her mother, Anne-Marie, without husband or prospects, took little Marie to Bern, Switzerland, when Marie was still a baby. In Bern, Anne-Marie took a job as a cook and housekeeper for a local doctor who had a side business, making wax models of the human body. His name was Dr. Philippe Curtius, and he was a touch eccentric, but extremely intelligent and charming, which will come into play in a big way. Marie and her mother moved in with Dr. Curtius, and we don't know the exact nature of the relationship, but there are several theories as to what was really going on. Marie called Dr. Curtius uncle, and he treated her as though she were his daughter. Now, it's possible that the relationship is exactly what was said. Her mother was housekeeper, and he merely took Marie under his wing. Other theories are that Marie's mother was having an affair with Dr. Curtius, or that Dr. Curtius was actually Marie's real father. We don't know. We mostly just have Marie's memoirs to go on, and she definitely embellished them. Dr. Curtius had been making wax anatomical models of the human body for medical students. You have to remember, at the time, there weren't photographs, and for the most part, doctors had to do shady things to get their hands on cadavers. Frankenstein, anyone? So wax models were seen as a lucrative alternative, and it turned out that Dr. Curtius was a master. He wasn't just churning out these models. He was using an artist's eye and attention for detail to ensure that every piece he cast had the right color tints, realistic hair, and he even went so far as to dress the models in sumptuous fabrics. He was particularly known for his models of, ahem, beautiful women. They don't outright say they were sex toys or anything like that, but it sounds like they were quite racy. Now, until 1765, he was a doctor and making these models for the benefit of the medical students. That is, until Louis XV's cousin, the Prince of Conti, heard that Dr. Curtius had made a model of his likeness. He traveled to Switzerland to see it and loved it so much, as well as Curtius's lady models, that he was like, hey, this is beyond medical modeling. You've got artistic talent. Come to Paris. I'm going to be your patron. So Dr. Curtius left Marie and her mother for Paris, where he was set up in a fine house, and thanks to his talent and his charm, became really popular in Parisian society. Like, common people wanted to come to his house to see all these lifelike wax models, and then philosophers and writers like Voltaire and Rousseau liked to come hang out at what became his salon. Roughly two years later, when Marie was six years old, she and her mother were reunited with Curtius in Paris. Now, Curtius is basically employed at this point just doing wax models of famous people. Voltaire and Rousseau, as I mentioned, but also Benjamin Franklin, the Count of Mirabeau, the Marquis de Lafayette, and probably most famously in terms of his art, Madame du Barry. All right, listeners, think back to our series on Marie Antoinette. Madame du Barry was the last mistress of Louis XV. She had been a shop girl. She was a commoner who basically set the tone at court and was queen in all but name. Marie Antoinette was raised a princess and just hated what Madame du Barry represented. However, Madame du Barry was also stunningly beautiful, and beauty in Paris at this time was all the rage. In the years leading up to the revolution, there was kind of a relaxing of the rules, and for the first time it was possible for people to gain fame, prestige, and kind of climb the social ranks based on their talent. Again, if you go back to the series we did on Marie Antoinette, which I'll link to in the show notes, the queen herself employed commoners like her minister of fashion, Rose Bertant, 
her hairdresser, Leonard Autier, and her perfumer, Jean-Louis Fargeon. This is kind of the backdrop that Dr. Curtius found himself, and he began making a name for himself with big exhibitions featuring these gorgeous wax women as well as wax models of the celebrities of the day, mostly political figures. All right, dear listeners, this is where we set our scene. An eccentric uncle hosting salons and doing wax portraits of the glitterati of Paris, all while a little girl watched from behind her mother's skirts. Chapter 2. The Royalist and the Terror Curtius treated Marie like a daughter, and when she began to show an eye for art, Curtius started training her in the art of molding wax. Her first subject was Voltaire. You know, a nice starter head just Voltaire, which she completed in 1777 at the age of 16. Now, Curtius had moved on to grand exhibitions. In 1770, he opened his Cabinet du Cire, which translates to wax cabinet. I'm really sorry if I mess up the pronunciations. I am horrible with French. This was one of the early wax museums, and he did a few things that made it a success. First off, he recognized the public's insatiable need to see celebrities. Again, no photography yet, so most common people had no idea what the queen and king looked like. Second, he switched people out routinely to keep the museum fresh. Marie became so skilled that her work rivaled his own. In fact, you can't even really tell the difference, so for some surviving pieces, it's unknown whether she made them or he did. So Marie's life revolved around helping Curtius bring these creations to life and helping him bring in new customers and new exhibits to his museum. In 1783, they opened the Caverne du Grand Voleur, Cave of the Great Thieves. Much like how everyone today loves true crime podcasts, back in the day, people couldn't get enough of the stories of criminals and murderers as told through wax exhibits. They would commit to a whole scene. So if you've never been to a wax museum, think of a theme park or a regular natural history museum where a scene is staged. That's what they were doing, only with models of actual people in wax. Now, this next part is not confirmed. The only source we have for this is Marie herself, and like I said, she was an exaggerator. Around 1780 to 1781, Marie claims to have been art tutor to Princess Elizabeth, Louis XVI's sister, and it was a very specific type of art instruction. It was votive making. That could have meant that she was teaching the princess to sculpt wax to make effigies of saints, or it could have just been votive candle making. Regardless, Marie claims to have been a confidant to the princess and that she lived with the royal family for nine years at Versailles, which would bring us to 1789 when things got real. She claimed to have been present and close with the royal family, even overhearing Louis on matters of state business. As we'll see in a bit, she had good reason to make these claims later, but again, there is no source on it other than her memoir. Versailles was a place steeped in tradition and rules, and there were even directories that had the names of every person who lived or worked in the palace, and she wasn't mentioned. So again, we don't know, but it's fun for her story. Curtius had met Rose Breton, who had come to his wax museum, and whom he had paid lavishly to help get realistic clothing for his exhibits with the royal family. If Marie did actually tutor the princess, it's possible that Rose got her an inn. Remember, commoners gotta work together. Curtius himself grew more political whereas Marie, by nature of her alleged work with Versailles, was a royalist. In her memoir, she said that she was with Curtius at his museum on July 12, 1789, so two days before the storming of the Bastille. Protesters demanded a figure of the king as well as busts of the Duke of Orléans and one of the finance ministers. Because the model of the king was fragile, 
made of wax and life-sized. There was no way that would work. So instead, they settled for the bust of the Duke and the minister, put the heads on pikes, and marched them through the streets of Paris. Later, Curtius would become a staunch Jacobin, which I, I know I'm murdering that. I'm sorry. Marie, for her part, if we're taking what she wrote at face value, had to hide her royalist sympathies lest she lose her head. As he grew more involved in the political situation, Marie had to take over responsibilities at his salon. With the French Revolution and the terror, which happened soon after, leaders would change almost daily, which made it difficult to keep the museum up to date. Not that that would matter too much, because the general public could no longer afford to visit, and the nobility weren't commissioning wax portraits, except at this point as death masks. Marie claimed that she and her mother were taken away in the dead of night and thrown into prison for her royalist sympathies. She also claimed that she was imprisoned with Josephine du Beauharnais, aka Napoleon's future wife, the Empress Josephine. She was prepared to face the guillotine. Her head was shaved and everything, but at the last minute, Curtius convinced the revolutionaries that she was his protege and did in fact share their revolutionary views. To prove her allegiance to the Jacobin, she was forced to make the death masks for various famous revolutionaries, as well as her former friends. Some of the people she sculpted included Robespierre, Jean-Paul Moreau, which she showed gruesomely in his tub after he was stabbed, the Princess de Lamballe, as well as Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. And according to her, she was either taken to the scene of these deaths to see it in person, or in the case of the king and queen, actually given their heads to cast. If that was true, that must have been traumatizing, as these had been her friends for a decade. Curtius died in 1794 and left everything to Marie, his estate, his money, and his two museums. She survived the terror, but what was to become of her without her mentor? Chapter 3, Becoming Madame Tussaud. Marie was left with some money and a fairly secure business. As long as she kept up with changing taste and publicity, she would make money. But she didn't feel secure as a woman living on her own, so she decided to marry. A year after Curtius's death, she married a civil engineer named Francois Tussaud, who gave her some children and her name, but not much else. An alcoholic and a gambler, he wasted her fortune and almost brought her to ruin. In 1802, she was invited to show her work in England at the Lyceum Theater. By this point, the Napoleonic Wars meant traveling back to France was out of the question, so she began touring her work all across the United Kingdom. Now, wax museums were becoming a thing, and it was kind of a cutthroat business, but a few things separated Marie from the rest. First off, she was hugely talented. Like, we see wax figures now, and it feels like there's something from a horror film. They're creepy, and they seem more like parody. But back in the day, that was how regular people actually saw the famous people they were reading about in newspapers. Okay, so she's got her talent going for her, but she also has that insane backstory I just told you. Whether true or not, she was telling people, hey, I hung out with Marie Antoinette, then I held her decapitated head in my lap as I made a wax model of it. That sold some tickets. She never saw her husband again, but over the years, her two sons joined her and learned the trade. In 1835, she opened the Baker Street Bazaar on, you guessed it, Baker Street, and this was the first permanent exhibition of her work. Her Chamber of Horrors, which was a side room that showed her more gruesome work, was a huge hit and exhibited the death masks of all the victims of the revolution. She also displayed the actual guillotine used to murder the royal family. The public was enthralled by this because it was still recent history and people were hungry to see what Marie Antoinette and the gang actually looked like. It also was kind of an offshoot of the Cavern of Thieves in that she knew that gore and horror sell. 
Many of her works are still in existence, and I'll have some links for you in the show notes, but Baker Street was where she was to remain working the front desk herself for the next 15 years until her death in 1850 at the age of 89. Her sons kept up the museum, and then her grandsons moved it to its current location on Marleybin Road in 1884. In 1925, the museum burned down, but was restored, only to be hit by a bomb during the German raids in World War II. It was rebuilt again. Then, in the 1970s, they began to open new branches of the museum across the world. The Chamber of Horrors was discontinued a few years ago, but they're adding new famous people all the time. So you can still see Marie Antoinette, but you'll also get to see Prince William and Lady Gaga. In life, Curtius, her mentor, overshadowed her. But now, her name is the one known across the world, with more than 2.5 million tourists a year still visiting her museums. Chapter 4, 250 Years of Celebrity What I loved about working on this episode was how we still have this connection to a historical event that happened about 250 years ago, which for context is around the same time that the United States first became a country. The other thing I enjoyed learning about Marie was just how much color is added to a story told so many times, but from new angles. Seeing the French Revolution and downfall of the monarchy through the eyes of the artist capturing it was fascinating. So I hope you go back and revisit the Marie Antoinette episodes. It's making me want to do some more on the era. So if you have any requests on that, please let me know. But now let's get to the fun part. I've got some great book and podcast recommendations for you. First off, the nonfiction book I relied on heavily for this is pretty much regarded as the last word on her life, and it's called Madame Tussauds, A Life in Wax by Kate Barrage. This book talks a lot about the nature of celebrity and how Madame Tussauds was akin to a tabloid photographer of her day. Next, you can actually read her memoir online for free, so I will link there. I only had time to read a little bit of it, but it's always fascinating to read memoirs of people who are so far removed from our timeline. The way they speak and write is always surreal because it's like if a black and white photograph had a voice. In terms of podcasts to check out, our friends at Steffi Miston History Class had a nice overview, and the History Extra podcast had an interview with Edward Carey, who wrote the book Little, which I'm going to talk about in just a sec. This was another life overview, but interesting because it's coming from the author who researched her, so he's really passionate about the subject and kind of editorializes a little bit, which I enjoyed. All right, last. In terms of fiction, there are two novels you'll want to check out. First off, as I just mentioned, Little by Edward Carey. So this book came out two years ago, and I actually wrote about it on my roundup of historical fiction books that year. Side note, if you didn't know that I have a blog at immortalperfumes.com, I do a lot of historical fiction book and movie reviews, and I also make recommendations, so definitely check that out. Anyway, before I was first made aware of the book, I had no idea that Marie Tussauds was even a real person, let alone a real person who hung out with Benjamin Franklin and Voltaire and Marie Antoinette. This book is very weird and loving and written in kind of a Dickensian parlance, which I really enjoyed. Carrie is also something of an artist, and so there's lots of illustrations, which not only go along with the subject matter, but give the book this kind of carnival feel, which I think is appropriate because I think she had a P.T. Barnum quality to her, which now that I say that, I should probably do an episode on him, if for no other reason than to sing the songs from The Greatest Showman. The last book I read was just your standard first-person historical account, and it's called Madame Tussauds by Michelle Moran. The book immediately starts with Louis, Marie Antoinette, and their children visiting their wax museum. And in this telling, Marie Tussauds is the one with the brains and creativity and the one doing all the work in the operation. For the scenes with Marie Antoinette alone, I love this book. 
I listened on audio and it was very pleasant while I've been quarantined, but just note, I do not recommend audio for little because like I said, there's illustrations and that adds to the experience. All right. Well, that's all I've got for you on today's episode of historical, a little shorter than usual, but I didn't have a lot of time because even though I'm quarantined with all of this time on my hands, homeschooling a first grader turns out that is not easy. This month, I may switch things up and do something about historical pandemics, just because I think that would help us all better understand what we're dealing with right now. If you're not subscribed to my newsletter, you can do that on immortalperfumes.com. And I'm doing some pick-me-up perfume giveaways just to help people feel a little bit better while they're stuck at home. I'm also going to be starting a virtual book club. So sign up so that you get wind of all of that. I'll be doing them throughout the duration of quarantine, which for me in Seattle is looking like another one and a half to two months at the least. Like I said last time, if you're struggling with isolation, please feel free to reach out. I've dealt with anxiety and depression before. I know what that's like. So just remember that you have a friend in Seattle. If you have a second, please leave a review or star rating on Apple Podcasts as that helps people find the show. And I'll see you back here next week for an episode about Marie Tussauds' Chamber of Horrors. (laughs) 